Great to be here with you all this morning. So thankful to be asked back to Clemson Prez. Isn't worship on a Sunday morning after a stinging loss just sweeter? I'm a Georgia Bulldog fan. I'm only 37 years old, so we've never won a championship in my lifetime. So I'm very used to this feeling. And each fall, I just delight in the Lord the day after those dreams go down the toilet. So I'm glad to get to be here on this Sunday morning with y'all. And uh, I'm going to read a passage in just a moment from Acts chapter 15, a passage that I love because it's a passage that gives me great hope in Jesus. And let me tell you a little bit about the passage before I read it. This passage opens up about 25 years after Jesus Christ was hung on a cross and killed outside of Jerusalem and put in a tomb where he would not stay because after three days he arose from the dead and appeared to his followers. And before he floated off into heaven, ascending to the right hand of the Father, he told his followers that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then he ascended. And when our passage opens here today in Acts chapter 15, what Jesus said would happen has happened. His followers have taken the gospel, the good news that Jesus has died for the sins of his people. And they have taken that message and spread it throughout Jerusalem, preaching right after the Holy Spirit fell upon them, preaching in Jerusalem, and thousands were converted. And then they went out from there into the surrounding regions of Judea and Samaria and preached the gospel there, and people were converted. And then they took the gospel out beyond the reach of the historic boundaries of the people of God, into the ends of the earth. And they preached the gospel there. And people believed. People were converted. People were brought into the family of God. Churches were established and were growing and bearing fruit and flourishing. And as our passage picks up, the action of the passage starts in one of those churches at the ends of the earth in a city called Antioch, which is in modern-day Turkey. And a church has been formed there at the ends of the earth. And what we see in this passage is an amazing thing happens. The ends of the earth are being reached. The gospel train that shot out of Jerusalem has gone to the ends of the earth, and it slams on the brakes. And it starts to roll in reverse, all the way back to Jerusalem, where it came from. Now, I hope to explain that a little bit after I read the passage. So listen to this, Acts chapter 15. This is God's Word. It is totally true. And we have it because God loves us, and He wants us to know Him. So listen to this. But some men came down from 
Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through grace, through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Let me pray. Lord, we do give you thanks for your word. We, thank, we give you thanks for worship. Lord, you're the God who will never let us down and who will never let us go. I pray that as we listen to this word of grace that you would penetrate our hearts that you would turn us away from our sin to Jesus, our great hope. 
and that you would fill us with joy and peace in him. And we pray in his name. Amen. Back when I was in college at the University of Georgia, I was a new Christian. I was converted in the ministry of RUF at UGA. And uh, I was a sophomore year. I was a new Christian. I was loving my new life in Christ. I felt free. I really believed that God loved me and He had set me free from all of my sin. He had forgiven me completely. I was reveling in that. I joined the local PCA church, Redeemer Presbyterian Church. It was right downtown. I was loving that. I got involved in a community group. I wanted to be at the church all the time. And one night, uh, there was an event going, going on downtown in Athens. And I don't remember what it was, a concert or something. And uh, I was going with a friend of mine. And I was driving downtown, parking in downtown Athens is a nightmare. And I thought, you know what? I can park at the church. This is my church. I'm going to pull into my church because it was not far from the venue we were going to. So I drove in, pulled into a parking spot. I was so happy to be able to park at my church. Got out of my car with my friend and we were walking towards the venue and a young man came walking up from behind me and uh, he began to speak to me, and I, I didn't quite pick up what he said, but I did hear uh, something about $5, and I turned around and said to him, uh, I'm sorry, sir, I can't give you $5, but the, the deacons meet here every Friday morning, and if you need assistance, they can help you. And he said, no, man, the church hired me as a parking lot attendant. It costs $5 to, work, to, to park here. And a realization came rushing in to me in that moment. That when that man began walking up to me and I saw him and he began to speak, that because of the color of his skin and the accent, the dialect of English that he spoke and the clothes that he wore, that I assumed that I knew what he wanted. And I did not listen to the words that he said. I had been soaking in this grace of Jesus that taught me by Jesus' words and his example to see the people around me like Jesus did. And I didn't see this guy. I saw a type. I thought he was homeless or a beggar, and I discounted him, and I just wanted to tell him no, and all this information that I had about the deacon fund, and go to my concert. It was a crushing realization. My prejudice was right before me. I felt exposed, convicted. And I've found out since then that moments like these happen pretty regularly in the Christian life. We who are walking with Jesus come into contact with blind spots, with sin patterns that we didn't even know about all the time. 
And what we have to realize over and over, even as we walk for, with Jesus for year after year, is that we need grace. We need grace. The passage that we have before us is all about grace. And it shows us and it tells us that this is a normal part of the Christian life. We have sin that clouds the way that we look at the world. And Jesus is in the business of exposing that and meeting us in it and giving us grace over and over again. And so that's what we're going to look at. We're going to talk about grace a lot. First, we're going to see that grace saves And secondly, we're going to see that grace grows. Those are our two points. First, grace saves. So our passage opens in this city called Antioch. The church is going on there. Things are going great. There are Jewish believers and there are non-Jewish believers called Gentiles who are gathering together to worship the Lord and serve Him But there's some people down in Jerusalem, where the church started, who are members of this party called the Pharisees. And, you know, if you've you've been around Christianity for a while, you know that in Jesus' time, the Pharisees were the bad guys, and that's true. But here, you got to understand, it says that these people who were members of the party of the Pharisees were Christians. They were probably some of the very people who, when Peter preached after the Holy Spirit came in Jerusalem and thousands were converted, they were those people. They heard the gospel and they repented and believed in Jesus and were a part of the church. But this group who was connected to the party of the Pharisees, they were Christians, but they heard about this stuff going on in Antioch. And it made them nervous. They were excited that people were coming to faith in Jesus like they had come to faith in Jesus. But they were concerned that that church had embraced some liberal theology. There were Gentiles who had believed in Jesus in the church at Antioch who were uncircumcised. And they were not being instructed to live out the law of Moses. And that made the Pharisees nervous. And so they sent a delegation from the church in Jerusalem to the church in Antioch to see what was going on. So this delegation goes from Jerusalem to Antioch and and looks around at the church and says, yes, this theology is, is dangerous. We don't feel comfortable with this. And the delegation confronted Paul and Barnabas, who were leaders in the church in Antioch. And they said, surely you can't let these Gentiles go on living like Gentiles. They need to become Jewish like us if they're going to really be saved. And Paul and Barnabas, it says in verse 2, in a way that I think knowing Paul was probably a bit understated, says that they had no small dissension and debate about this issue. 
and they couldn't come to an agreement. The delegation couldn't come to an agreement with the, the, the leadership of the church in Antioch, and so they decided to call what we Presbyterians might refer to as the First General Assembly. They called a meeting with leaders from churches all over the, the, the Christian world at that time in Jerusalem. So people from Antioch and people from surrounding churches gathered together in Jerusalem to have a meeting to deal with this issue. The theology that's going on in Antioch that says that Gentiles can fully participate in the church. Is that okay? And they begin to discuss. There is much discussion in this general assembly. People are presenting evidence, and they seem to come to an impasse. Again, they can't figure it out. Should we fully include these people, or should we make them become Jewish like us. But in the midst of this debate, two heroes emerge. One is James. James addressed the floor, and he said, guys, we shouldn't be surprised that the Gentiles are coming in. Don't you remember that in the Old Testament that God said that this would happen? And he reads this passage out of Amos that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. God said that. God said that Gentiles were going to come into his people and it's happening. Shouldn't we rejoice? Shouldn't we embrace them? And then Peter Peter just hits a home run. Peter said, for one thing, guys, don't you remember what I told you? How I preached the gospel to Gentiles and they believed the gospel and God testified on their behalf by sending His Holy Spirit to indwell them just like the Holy Spirit indwelled us. They are just like us. And then... He said he made no distinction, distinction, having cleansed their hearts by faith. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Peter reminds them that this anxiety that they're feeling are these dirty Gentiles really going to be included in the people of God? They're not like us. Are we going to allow them to worship with us and, and claim all the benefits of knowing Christ that we have? Are we going to allow them to fully be included? Even though they haven't been circumcised, even though they aren't living according to Moses' law, are they going to be included? And Peter tells them, guys, they're saved the same way that we are. They need grace just like we need grace. 
They're not the dirty Gentiles. They're no different from you. They're no different from me. The only thing that saves is grace. So let me... Mm. Let me ask you this. If you're here and you're burdened by sin, if you have been made to feel like you could never belong among God's people because of things you have done, things you struggle with, things that have been done to you, if you have ever been made to feel that way, you have to hear what those Gentiles heard. Grace is enough. Jesus' grace is enough for you because grace really is what saves. Ken Parker was uh, a grand dragon in the KKK. He became a grand dragon uh, by recruiting other members to join the KKK, and he had a green robe that signified his rank as a grand dragon in the KKK. But after he had been in for several years doing the work of the KKK, he got dissatisfied. Because the KKK wasn't hateful enough. And so he left the KKK to join a neo-Nazi group. He got tattooed alongside his Confederate flag that said white pride. He got tattooed uh, the, the lightning bolt SS symbol of the Nazis. He did... Uh, All of the things that neo-Nazis do, he was at the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville where he said that they pretended like they had gathered, the the neo-Nazis pretended like they had gathered to preserve American history, but really they were interested in starting a race war. And uh, he was there when the young woman was killed by a driver of a car who was aiming to to destroy the lives of counter-protesters. Not long after the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Ken Parker was back home in Florida, and he was walking through the courtyard of his apartment complex when he saw a barbecue going on. And for reasons that he cannot explain, he walked over to the barbecue and started to to talk to people there which was amazing because almost everyone at the barbecue was black. And he found out as he spent some time with these people that it was a church barbecue. And the pastor, William McKinnon III, spent all night talking to Ken Parker, just getting to know him, hearing his story. And William McKinnon shared the gospel with Ken Parker which Ken didn't 
fully grasp at first, but he was intrigued. And he kept talking and meeting with William for months. And about three months later, he showed up at church as one of the only white guys in a black church. And after attending for a few Sundays on Easter Sunday in 2018, he stood up before that congregation and confessed to his sins of racism and hatred, and he repented. And he professed faith in Jesus. And that church ran up and embraced him. And a few months later in July, on July 21st of 2018, they took him out into the Atlantic Ocean and they put a white robe on him. And they baptized him in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Those people did not see him as being a dirty racist. They did not see him as being too far gone for the gospel. They saw him as a lost and wounded and needy sinner, just like they had been. And they shared the gospel with him, and he responded to it, and he believed. And now he is our brother in Christ and will be forever. So if you feel like you're not good enough, if you feel like your sin is so heavy that you could never be brought in, you need to hear that grace really is enough Grace really does save. One of my old pastors used to say that the mafia and the church are the only two places where you have to be bad to get in. And that's true. Because grace really does save. But not only does grace save, grace also grows. This is my favorite part of the passage. You see, when this debate happened about whether grace really is enough, and the two heroes stood up and saved the day, Peter and James, something you don't get from this passage, but you get if you read the rest of the New Testament, you get it in Galatians chapters 1 and 2. That Peter and James aligned themselves with the Pharisee party. We hear in Galatians chapters 1 and 2 that when the men came from Jerusalem to Antioch to investigate the liberal theology, it says they were men sent from James. And Peter went to the church in Antioch, and he was there before this delegation came from Jerusalem. And when he first got there, he was eating with Gentiles and embracing them as brothers and sisters in Christ and living with them in fellowship. But when the party from James got to Antioch, Peter separated himself from the Gentiles. And he decided that actually, yeah, they are, they are kind of dirty. 
I don't think that I want to be in fellowship with them. Maybe we should make them get circumcised. Peter and James forgot the gospel. Peter and James, who were pillars of the very early church, they were guys from whom the gospel train went out. And they had forgotten the gospel. But this is what's so amazing about grace. Grace doesn't only save us. Grace grows us because we need grace all the time. And when the gospel goes out from us, when we're walking with Jesus, when we've embraced the grace of the gospel, and then we forget it over and over again, God does not just keep going. He doesn't leave us behind That's why when the Bible says he will not leave us and forsake us, that's what it means. That the gospel train will slam on brakes and it will come back and get us over and over again. The gospel train has to back up and get us. This is normal. This is what it's like To be a disciple, this is what it's like to grow and bear fruit for the kingdom of God. We need grace again and again. So I would ask you this morning, where do you need the gospel train to back up and unload its precious cargo in your life? Where do you need the gospel today? especially if you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, especially if you've done great things for God like Peter and James had. Where have you forgotten the gospel like they did? Has your heart grown cold towards a certain group of people? Have you fallen into the trap of participating in divisions within the church about political affiliations, or vaccine statuses, or mask mandates? Have you grown hard toward groups of people who live in your neighborhoods or on your campus, people you think could never be reached by the gospel, who are racist and participate in alt-right conventions, or who are part of the LGBT community? Are there people who you doubt could ever be reached by the gospel? Do you need to repent of that? Do you need to remember that they can be saved just like you were? Where does the gospel need to back up in your life? Is there a secret sin that you've been harboring and justifying and trying not to think about? that you need to just hear the whistle blowing of the gospel train coming back, inviting you to repent and believe again, to experience all over again the renewing, cleansing, enlivening grace that Jesus purchased for you on that cross outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. 
When I first moved to North Carolina, which was my last stop before here, uh, one of the first things I did was rip out a bunch of old scraggly azalea bushes and plant some blueberry bushes. I've got a secret dream of being a farmer. I told you all a little bit about this if you were here when I preached at Easter. It's a big dream of mine. Uh, I'm not very good at it, but I want to grow things. And when I moved to a new house, I planted seven blueberry bushes in my yard. I was so excited about them. I could only afford one of the big bushes, and then I bought a bunch of the littler pots with smaller bushes. And that one big bush I was so excited about, I planted it in the spot that just looked like it was going to be perfect for blueberries to grow. And and I planted it first. And then I planted the other six off in the less desirable spots. And I watched these bushes grow for two years. And the little ones, amazingly, took off, exploded. They grew. They were producing fruit like the second year. It was so exciting to watch. But that one that I had put so much hope in didn't grow at all. Stayed the same exact size. It didn't die, but it didn't grow and it didn't produce any fruit. I couldn't figure out why. I fertilized it. I went and petted it, talked to it. Nothing worked. Finally, I got frustrated and I said, I'm just going to dig it up. And I started to dig it up. And when I did, I realized what the problem was. When I planted that one, I planted it first and I was so excited. When I dug out the hole, I had dug it in such a way that created like a, a seal for the walls of the hole that I dug. Compact dirt. I didn't dig out the, the hole bigger and loosen up the soil like you're supposed to. And so when I put the plant down in the hole, the root ball that, that was in the container that I bought it in stayed the exact same size. The dirt all around the, the hole that I had dug was too hard. And the roots couldn't penetrate into it and get the nourishment from the soil from my yard. And without being able to reach its roots out into that rich and fertile soil, that plant couldn't flourish. It couldn't grow. It couldn't produce fruit. If our roots cannot reach out into the fertile soil of the gospel, if it's blocked, if our roots are blocked by the compacted soil of our pride, of our good works, of our put-together lives, if that hard soil keeps our roots from going out into the nourishing soil of Jesus, we are not going to grow or bear fruit. We need the grace of Jesus to come back to us, to loosen that soil, to put our roots out into our Savior so that we can grow and bear fruit in this world. We need the gospel train to back up in all of our lives. Let me pray and ask the Lord to help us do that. Lord, I thank you so much for your good news to us. We thank you for grace. We thank you that it's real. 
that it doesn't stop reaching us. It didn't stop reading, reaching Peter and James. Lord, what a great encouragement. And it doesn't stop reaching us our whole lives long. I do pray that you would bring conviction to the places in our lives where we need conviction, that we might be exposed for still needing our Savior. Lord, comfort us with the hope of the gospel and with your lavish grace and grow us that we might bear fruit in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.